0: Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a podcast brought to you by the Triad Network. This podcast is designed to share trending topics
1: occurring within the world and our communities and bring them a behavioral and mental health
2: perspective. Welcome to Behavioral Health Today, a Triad production. I'm your host, Charlie Dixon. My guest today is retired Major General Greg Martin. Greg Martin, PhD, is a retired major general and a 36-year army combat veteran, celebrated for his remarkable career commanding engineer units and holding prestigious roles such as president of the National Defense University and commander of Fort Leonard Wood. Greg is an accomplished author. His book, Bipolar General, My Forever War with Mental Illness, candidly shares his journey. With advanced degrees from MIT, the Naval War College, and the Army War College, Greg's indomitable spirit offers hope and inspiration to others. We're excited to have Greg with us today to discuss bipolar disorder, his book, The Bipolar General, My Forever War with Mental Illness, and his experiences with his bipolar diagnosis. Greg, I wanna welcome you to our show. Thanks, Charlie, it's great to be with you. As we get started today, I'd like my listeners to know a little bit more about your book, The Bipolar General, and what type of influences your diagnosis had on your life.
0: Well, I went through a hellacious, terrible, life-threatening experience. And I figured, well, there's no sense keeping this to myself because it can help a lot of other people. If I share it and I'm totally honest about what happened and you know, share my lessons learned, it could help people it could save lives it could promote recovery it could help stop the stigma so i felt really it was like an obligation sort of a duty to do
2: it awesome awesome setting the foundation for our listeners today can you give us your definition of bipolar disorder and what the experiences were like for you
0: sure so bipolar disorder it falls under the category of mood disorders and what it specifically what it means Is that your brain has bipolar illness which is an actual illness or disease inside the cells and the wiring of the brain and it means that the brain on its own will decide okay i'm going to go up into mania and it starts to produce and distribute excessive amounts of powerful natural chemicals like dopamine endorphins and others and so when those chemicals start getting produced and distributed in the brain it drives a person, their mood up, up, up into mania. Then the brain decides, and again, this isn't necessarily has anything to do with the will of the person. It says, okay, enough mania, I'm gonna go into depression. It starts underproducing those same powerful chemicals. And so the, the production and distribution goes way, way down, which then drives the person into depression. Now, it's not all mania and depression. There are plenty of periods of, you know, quote, normalcy where the brain is neither up nor down. So it's kind of a cyclical thing that goes up, down, and then on an even steady keel for a while. So that's, that's really what bipolar disorder is. And my particular diagnosis was bipolar disorder type 1, which means it's a combination of real mania and depression. Whereas bipolar disorder type two is mostly depression with some low level below the threshold of, of, of actual mania.
2: Got you. I appreciate that while this is a diagnosis that you have, that you've seen like you've done a lot of research to really figure out what it is, what you have, and, and what it looks like maybe in yourself and in other people. Looking at your your whole story, what did it look like? Um, What did early life look like for you? And I read in your your book, The Bipolar General, that you weren't diagnosed until later in life. What did life look like before that diagnosis? So
0: I found out about two years ago, two or three years ago, as I was writing the book and doing research, and I started working with a, a very famous psychiatrist named Nasir Gami, and he teaches up at Harvard and Tufts. And what I discovered was that I was born with a bipolar brain and that I lived on the bipolar spectrum pretty much my whole life. And starting in about high school, I was extremely successful at everything I did, sports, academics, leadership. And what, what was really giving me this boost was a what they call a hyperthymic personality, which is a near continuous state of low level mania. So I had the advantage of having all these extra chemicals in my brain that fueled my energy, drive, enthusiasm, problem solving skills, creativity. And it carried me for years and decades with enhanced performance. So from high school, I went to West Point where I excelled, Army Ranger school. Then I was an officer out in the army and. Everything I did was a success. And, you know, I went to MIT, the Army sent me to MIT to graduate school. And they said, "Okay, Martin, your mission is to get one master's degree in engineering. So I came out of there with two master's degrees and a Ph.D. And like, like that is not normal behavior. That was evidence of this fuel in my brain that was lifting me. And it was like that my whole life, my whole Army career so and then it wasn't it wasn't until I was 47 in 2003 where I actually had my real onset of bipolar disorder. Everything prior to that was kind of a prelude.
2: Okay. And so you mentioned that your bipolar symptoms allowed you to be a high performer throughout your life. Can you expound a bit for me and, and explain and discuss how those symptoms and episodes affected you with your combat experience in the Iraq war? And when was that moment that bipolar really interfered with your life? When those negative symptoms of depression, negative feelings, when did those really start to interfere with your life?
0: Yeah. So I I went into mania, real, real bipolar disorder, 2003 Iraq war, you know, the pressure, the stress, the thrill, the euphoria of leading troops in combat under fire that triggered my genetic predisposition for bipolar disorder. So 2003, I was a key commander in the invasion of Iraq. And so it was very, very intense preparation, training, getting ready to go. Meanwhile, while we were in Kuwait, we actually got attacked with Scud missiles. And so when we attacked across the Kuwait-Iraq border, once we rolled into a a new country, I felt this weight lifted off of my shoulders, you know, so all the training was behind us. And now we were on the move, attacking into Iraq. And I felt literally like Superman. I felt fearless. My energy levels went through the roof. I didn't need sleep. My mind was operating like a high-speed computer. I could look across the battlefield and could anticipate and rapidly solve complex, unexpected problems before anybody else even knew there was a problem to solve. And I was doing this, making life and death decisions under fire on the battlefield. I mean, it was extraordinary. And I was literally all over the battlefield physically. And so what happened was the stress, the thrill, the euphoria of leading thousands of troops in combat It triggered my genetic predisposition for bipolar disorder, sending me into a high-performing mania. And again, it gave me extra energy, drive, enthusiasm, problem-solving skills, creativity on the battlefield. And it carried me almost the whole year in Iraq. I was mostly manic, high-performing mania, not out of control, you know, insane. But then I did dip occasionally into episodes of depression. And when I was in these depressed states, and it would usually only be for like a couple hours to maybe a day, I was essentially withdrawn, confused, indecisive, low energy. My brain was foggy and I couldn't think quite right. But then I would always bounce back into mania until, as I said, we went back to Germany. And then the thrill of war behind me, I then crashed into depression for about 10 months. And it was terrible. I was able to function and do my job, but it was really detrimental. And I realized then, hey, there's something wrong with me. And I went to the doctor and it actually went three times over the next couple of years when I I was depressed and said, hey, there's something wrong with me, doctor. Help me out. And uh, each time they said, you're fine. There's nothing wrong with you. And they completely misdiagnosed me. They couldn't see past you know, my mask of success, you know, I was successful. And they couldn't see through that to the fact that I had a sick brain. And so that happened a a few more times. And then finally, it was in 2014, 11 years after Iraq, that I was literally I was in full blown mania, I went crazy I went into a state of madness or insanity and I was fired from my job for my you know bizarre disruptive out of control behavior I was fired forced to retire and then later hospitalized and one of the things that I was ordered to do was to go get a psychiatric evaluation and I got 3 of them while I was in a state of mania and again the doctor said you're fine there's nothing wrong but over the next few months I crashed into terrible hopeless crippling depression with terrifying psychosis and then i went back to the doctor and said hey doctor there's something wrong with me i can barely function as a human being and then they said okay you have bipolar disorder
2: Got you. Wow. And that's unfortunate that it took so much for you to just reach the point of where you were being heard, where people were really hearing you. In In those moments, what really put you on the path towards recovery? What, what within you made you say, you know what, I need to do better. I need more for my life. I need different things.
0: I would say it was a period of about two years. So in November of 2014, when I went into the doctor, severe depression, And I got the diagnosis. I would say getting the correct diagnosis was really step one, because before that, I didn't know what was wrong with me. I had no idea. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what. And so getting the diagnosis gave me a face, a target, something I could really focus on. But I went from bad to worse. The medications didn't work. I I continued to go downhill. I lived in bipolar hell for about two years where I could hardly function all i wanted to do was to die i had terrible delusions and hallucinations about my own death which i'd be happy to talk about i was hospitalized i i think the hospitalization was the second big thing that helped me it because what happened with hospitalization was it was like i stopped going down i stopped getting worse and i i reached a stable plateau for a while and then The third thing that really helped me was they got the right medications. So after two years of the wrong medication, they got the right meds. And so once I got on the right medication, then I stabilized. Then I started feeling like my own self, had energy again, had interest, wanted to be alive and had hope that I could recover. So those were the three things, diagnosis, hospitalization, correct meds. And then with the correct meds, then I started my journey of recovery. And that was seven and a half years ago. And I call it a journey of recovery because it's not like, you know, you flip a switch and you're recovered. It doesn't work that way. It's it's a continuous journey where you have to manage the illness and beware of relapse and setbacks. So then I developed a really healthy lifestyle. We moved to Florida for the sunshine and the warmth. And then it was healthy living, diet. Exercise, low stress, plenty of sleep. Then it was the five P's, you know, purpose. I had to come up with my purpose for living, which I did. It's sharing my bipolar story to help stop the stigma, promote recovery, and save lives. Then I had to get a network of friends, happy, energetic, fun people to be with. Third was live in a good place that makes me happy and gives me the ability to do the things I want to do. And that was Cocoa Beach, Florida. Fourth was perseverance. had to, You have to persevere because this is hard stuff. And if you have a setback, which you will, you have to be able to bounce back, recover, keep fighting, will to win. And then finally, this idea called presence, which is being able to think about your own thinking. Because a lot of times what we think is not accurate. It's It leads us astray. We have faulty thoughts. And that's where a therapist, and therapy is a big part of this whole thing. A therapist can really help you with your faulty thinking.
2: Right. A few times, you've actually mentioned the stigma of having a mental illness. Can you kind of dig deeper a little bit for that for me? So as you're going through your journey, what kind of stigmas have you battled? What does that feel like for you?
0: Well, stigma is the faulty belief that mental illness and bipolar disorder are the fault of the person who has the disease. So people, they blame the sick person. And they say, oh, it's because you have lack of willpower, lack of character. You're not trying hard enough. You're weak. And that's totally based on ignorance, because we know scientifically that mental illness and other brain conditions are just as physically real as diabetes, cancer, heart disease. And so, you know, there's no stigma, you know against people with those conditions. And so neither should there be against somebody who has bipolar disorder or some other mental illness. And so with me, I know the stigma was there. And I know there were people who thought, hey, Martin has just kind of lost it. He's weak. He's not tough enough. But I, I dismissed them because I knew it's not true. And plus, I mean, my whole life, you know, West Point, Army Ranger School, you know, all this hard Army stuff, leading thousands of troops in combat. I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that it had nothing to do with, you know, being weak or having, you know, low character. The stigma never affected me.
1: We'll be right back after word from our sponsor. Nearly nine in 10 registered voters believe the nation faces a mental health crisis, according to a new USA Today Suffolk University poll. Americans are more concerned than ever about their mental health. Mental Health First Aid provides the resources and training to identify, understand, and respond to signs of mental health and substance use challenges. It provides the confidence and skills needed to offer life-saving assistance, and it provides peace of mind. Our experts provide Mental Health First Aid training for adults, teens, caregivers, veterans, law enforcement, EMS, and school faculty. Mental health concerns are on the rise, but evidence-based training through Mental Health First Aid can make a difference. Visit mentalhealthfirstaid.org to find a course near you or email hello at mentalhealthfirstaid.org to schedule a training. Courses are available for individuals, groups, organizations, and companies of all sizes. Visit mentalhealthfirstaid.org and make a difference in your community.
2: That's, that's awesome to hear because I'm sure being a person who has been strong and has pushed for excellence for your entire life to be hit with something like this later on in life has had to be difficult. So what what do you think the solution to erasing the stigma or helping people find help? What is the solution to that?
0: Well, stigma is the biggest barrier to people getting help. It's the number one deterrent, and it's so sad. And it's such a shame because without getting help for these conditions, frequently the person, it will destroy their marriage and their family and their career and their finances. It often leads to homelessness, addiction, incarceration, and death. And it could be death by suicide or some other violent situation. So that's typically what happens if a person doesn't get help. And the reason they don't get help is because they're embarrassed and they're ashamed and they, they're stigmatized. So what do we do about it? I think we have to have a comprehensive educational campaign that teaches people, you know, from from school age on and then out in the workplace, in the military, you know, in the in the population that, hey, you know, stigma There's no place for it. It's really a form of discrimination or prejudice that's based on ignorance. And so I think we need an educational process. And then I think we need to educate people on, you know, the what are the basic symptoms of the most common brain conditions? You know, what are they? What do they look like? So that people can see either in themselves or in their family member or, you know, a friend or a neighbor or a work colleague, they can say, Hey, look, I'm seeing some troubling signs in you. And, you know, I've done my homework and I'm I'm concerned that this could be, you know, the beginning of some form of mental illness or other brain condition that could really be destructive. And so, you know, I love you. We're friends or family. Let's go see a medical professional. I'll go with you. And I'll go to the appointment with you so that you don't feel bad. And we really have kind of a full court press of awareness and helping other people. I think that's the best way to combat it.
2: I completely agree with you. being able to, one like you mentioned, recognize what it looks like, what what does the change in a person, what does that mean? And then also being able to provide the support, um, knowing where to take someone and encouraging them and maybe even going with them is incredible. You did mention your family members or just making sure you have supportive family members. What does that look like for you?
0: Well, my family was very supportive. my wife and three sons. So I think it is, to be understanding, to be patient, to not blame the afflicted person for their condition, to be helpful, to be informed as to what the disorder is, how it manifests itself, what the steps of recovery look like. And then just, just being there really as a, kind of as a friend, non-judgmental. I, I would say those are the main traits
2: Providing that support. That is awesome to hear. And I am, I'm glad that you have that in your, in your family. So as we kind of wind down today, can you leave us with the final message or even maybe a hallmark story that says, this is how you help someone who is suffering from a mental illness?
0: Yeah, a couple things. First off, when I was in bipolar hell, that two-year period where I wanted to die, I never thought I would get better. I didn't have any hope at all. I, I thought my life's going to keep going down and I'm going to die a miserable, horrible death. That's what I thought was going to happen. But a combination of my wife, a, you know, a good friend, battle buddy from the Army, and the medical professionals at the VA where I went up in uh, White River Junction, Vermont, I think their caring and their encouragement, And then the medical people getting me on the right track with medication. And then I started feeling good. Once I got on the right meds, I felt good. I felt myself improving. And I said, man, there is hope. I can get better. You know, this is a journey that I can do. I think that was kind of a hallmark moment. And then as far as helping others and really making a difference, when I got down to Florida, I said, I need a purpose. I need a mission. And I came up with the one which was sharing my bipolar story to help stop the stigma, promote recovery, save lives. So I started sharing my story, started telling my story. Rotary clubs, church groups, retreats, you know, nothing really big, just little groups. Then I said, okay, I'm going to write down the essence of my talk. And I I said, I'm going to get it published in a local paper. And then I got a a regional paper. Mm -hmm. Then I got a magazine. And then before you knew it, I was giving talks, I mean, podcasts, talks to big conventions, keynote speaker at medical conventions, getting published in Psychology Today, Psychiatric Times, big military magazines. And before you know it, I had 25 published articles, probably close to 100 talks, interviews, podcasts. And then I wrote the book. And, you know, the book has been like a blockbuster, it was rated as a number one bestseller. It's being translated into Chinese and Portuguese down in Brazil. It's being just gobbled up by the medical profession. It's being used to teach med school classes. You know, I've been asked to speak at grand rounds, big conferences with a thousand people or more, military commands, veterans groups, Fortune 500 companies. And so the feedback from the speaking and the writing in the book has been incredibly positive. People are saying, hey, this is a life-saving material. It's inspirational. It's frightening and it's terrifying, but it's gonna help save lives and it's gonna educate people on how to deal with serious mental illness, how to recover and how to live a healthy, happy, purposeful life.
2: Awesome. And and I will concur with that. I've read about half of your book in the last week. Uh, it's very hard for me to put down. I'm reading it on Kindle right now. And one of the things that I will say is that I've been in the mental health profession for over a decade. But to hear your story, the way that you tell it, it's almost been um, life changing for me to be able to hear The story from someone who has been before the diagnosis, in the middle of the diagnosis, and now on the other side of it. So thank you for sharing your story in the form of your books. I've, you know, scanned some of your articles and they have all been really life changing to me. So thank you for that. So I mentioned that the book, The Bipolar General, My Forever War With Mental Illness is available on Kindle. But where else can folks learn about it? Where can they find the book, the rest of your work? Where can we find you?
0: So the book is available in written, Kindle, and audiobook, wherever books are sold. The two biggest sellers of books are Amazon, and, you know, it's really quick and easy to order off Amazon, and Barnes & Noble. So those are probably the two biggest booksellers. The other thing I would just highlight is my website, which is www.bipolargeneral.com. Dot com and when you go to the website so it's bipolargeneral.com, the landing page has very good links to Amazon, Barnes and Noble so you can you can order right off of those. So th- that's where you can get resources about me and on me. I will say there's another there's a company and you can go that's actually got tremendous resources on resilience and mental health. The website is grit hope.com a lot of good information another one is called by b-i-a-f-f-e-c-t.com that's at university of illinois speaking of which the other thing about the book is a number of med school professors have told me they said it's the best book they've ever read on not just bipolar disorder but on mental illness in general the encouragement has been incredible.
2: Well, and, and I will, I mean, I'm not a medical professional that in that way, but I would definitely agree. Again, I've not read, I've read lots of uh, books that people have, you know, just written about their personal experiences. And this is one of the few that kind of took you through the full journey um, and inspires hope at the same time. So thank you again for sharing um, your story with us today. Is there any final message you'd like to leave for our listeners?
0: Yes. I would tell you, be a good family member, friend and colleague and, you know, check yourself for possible mental health disorders and then check your buddies, your family members, your friends. And if you see something concerning, be candid. Don't sugarcoat it. Talk to them out of love and respect and caring. Say, hey, I'm really concerned. And get them into you know a, a medical professional, and then remember you, you know once you get a diagnosis, it's not a quick snap your fingers. Sometimes it took it took me eleven years from onset to diagnosis, and then it took two years from uh, diagnosis to getting the right medications. So this stuff takes time because the brain is so complex. There's not it's not a quick snap your fingers and and you're done like a broken leg or something, and then. You know, remember perseverance, keep battling, keep fighting, don't give up. And there's always, always hope. And if you're the one who has the affliction, remember, there's always hope. And if you're the one who's helping someone, remember to continue to encourage them and give hope, infuse hope and, you know, caring so that they, they can feel hope and they can get better.
2: I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> Major General Martin, I really appreciate you speaking with us today. It's been a great chat.
0: Thank you, Shirley. It's been my pleasure.
2: And thank you to our listeners for taking the time to join us today. Just as a reminder, all of the resources for this episode and an archive of all of our episodes can be found on our webpage at tryouthq.com BHT. And we look forward to having you back with us next time on Behavioral Health Today.